Good evening. When my wife and I first started dating, I thought I had it all together. I thought that I had all planned out nice and sharp. Like most men, I thought I was pretty smooth. I had it all mapped out, where we were going to go, what we were going to do, what I was going to say, even the little tokens that I brought with me to show that I was interested in her. And all of it was stuff that she appreciated. It got her attention. She showed gratitude to it. And it was part of what made me, I guess, attractive initially. But there was a couple of things that seemed not to quite get the emotional response that I was hoping for. Some of you men may be familiar with this as well. Uh, One of the things that I did is since we had kind of a distance relationship at first, we only got to see each other about every two to three weeks, I thought it would be really important to make every occasion very special. And so one of the things I did is on our first date, I brought one pink rose. On the second date, I brought two. On the third date, I brought three. And you can see where this is headed. And while, again, she was grateful and showed gratitude for it, It didn't quite have the emotional effect that some of the other things did or that I thought it was going to. And on the course of our relationship, as it developed further, there were other things that were like this, where I thought it was pretty smooth, she appreciated it, but it didn't necessarily have the response that I had hoped for. You see, there was a problem. The problem was, is that what I thought she was like didn't necessarily match what she was actually like. That is to say, my understanding of her at that point was still pretty shallow. I didn't fully appreciate her as she really was. In particular, the flower thing had to do with the fact that I didn't fully understand or appreciate how much she valued frugality, which is a wonderful trait in women. She thinks we shouldn't buy something unless we really need it or it adds something of lasting value. And let's face it, flowers do neither of those things. (laughs) They die remarkably quickly after buying them, sometimes on the drive down to Danville. (laughs) And so for her, anything other than one flower on a very, very special occasion basically says, I don't know you. I don't really understand who you are or what you really value. And so while I thought at the time that I knew her, I really didn't. Right? I thought that she was very unique. In fact, after our first day, I called my parents and said, you know, my 34 years of life, I've never met anyone like this. I've got to find out more about her. I knew she was unique. But that didn't really amount to anything at the beginning because my understanding was so shallow. And it was only when I was able to get into a deeper understanding of who she was that I was able to then start behaving in a way that reflected that and then got the response that ultimately we wanted and that ultimately led to us becoming married. Now, if I had never done that, if I had never gotten past that and gotten to that depth, we never would have had a deeper relationship and we would never have really been in a position to assess whether we were ultimately right for each other. Probably we would end up, ended up breaking up, or if we had somehow ended up getting married, we would have had a shallower relationship. You know, the same thing can happen between us and God. That is to say, if you're a Christian, you certainly would say in your head, the Christian view of God is distinct. But do you know why it's distinct? By most surveys, about 90% of Americans believe in a God, and about two-thirds of the entire world's population believes in a God, but only a small fraction of them are Christians. What's the difference? Do you know what it is? Can you explain it? Can you defend it? Can you apply it to your life? If not, there's a sense in which you might be really just a generic monotheist who's going to a Christian church. If you're not a Christian and you're considering whether or not Christianity is a plausible view of the world or something that you would like to uh, possibly consider believing, whether it's reasonable or whether it's not, you can't make an accurate assessment of that unless you know what distinctively Christian view of God really is. If you don't see that, then ultimately all you're doing potentially is accepting or rejecting a generic view of God and not the view of God that Christianity often offers. And so, all of us have a need to understand the Christian view of God. 
I want to propose the Christian view of God is distinct, distinctive because it holds that God is the triune incarnate redeemer. Triune incarnate redeemer. So you can see that naturally how we pick the topics for each of the weeks. But what do these mean? What does it mean to be triune? What does it mean to be incarnate? What does it mean to be a redeemer? How is it possible, right? Triune, how can three persons be still somehow one God? Or how incarnate, how can God become a man? Or redeemer, how can one death somehow save the world? How does that make sense? How could a rational person believe that? And if it does make sense, is there any actual argument for it? Is this something that we can only either take or reject on faith, on blind allegiance to a tradition? Or is this something where there can actually be reasons for believing it or not believing it? And then finally, how might it make a difference in our lives, whether we believe it or not? This is our challenge for the next three weeks. So for this week, from now on, we will turn to Trinity. Next week, we'll talk about incarnation. And then finally, God as Redeemer. A couple of assumptions. I'll go through some of these quickly. I've already touched on a few of them. Uh, to talk about what it means for God to be triune or what it means for God to be incarnate or what it means for God to be a redeemer is a pretty significant task, especially in 45, well, actually now 40 minutes. And so in order to have any chance of doing a good job at this, we've got to have some boundaries, some kind of working assumptions. And by making these assumptions, I'm not saying in any way that these things are trivial or that they are obvious or that there aren't serious questions about them. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that they are so serious that I don't want to insult them by giving a casual response to them. So the first one, first issue can't adequately be addressed here is I'm going to assume that it is appropriate to use reason independent of scripture to understand God. So I'm not going to be uh, quoting scripture passages to you to argue for the Trinity or the incarnation or that God is our redeemer. Instead, I'm going to use rational arguments one way or the other, or at least arguments that are attempting to be rational. We'll talk in the Q&A whether they are or not. Now, that might seem a little odd to you if you're a Christian or even if you're not a Christian. Unfortunately, as Aubrey mentioned, uh, a lot of folks don't know that Christianity actually intends for us to know God through two different means. The first one is kind of the obvious one, which sometimes gets called special revelation. This is, in effect, um, something that's true in a lot of religions, that Knowledge of God that's supposed to come through supernatural means, so divinely inspired scripture, right? God speaks to some person uh, supernaturally, writes it down, we read it, come to have knowledge of God that way. That's sort of the obvious way you would think of, of knowing something about God. Reading the Hebrew Bible, reading the New Testament. In other religions, there would be other potential texts that you might use. Christianity affirms that there's a second way that we have knowledge of God, and this is called uh, natural revelation or general revelation. This is the knowledge of God that we have through human reason trying to understand itself, the world, and reality in general. Christianity does not hold that you either take it or leave it on the basis of Scripture. In fact, Scripture itself affirms that we can know things about God through reason and through uh, applying that reason to the world around us. The Hebrew King David in the Psalms talks about the heavens declare the glory of God, right? That somehow the heavens have in them some sort of evidence that God exists. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that from the creation of the world, God, God's invisible nature and his eternal power has been clearly seen, right? That's a pretty bold claim, clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. In other words, the implicit line there is that there is evidence out there that a rational person ought to be able to discover and to find. Now, if you are not a Christian, don't think that Christianity is something that you either accept or reject on faith. There can be reasons for it, and those are things that you ought to consider. And if you are a Christian and you're not aware of what those reasons are, this is a good chance to get to know it. Now, obviously, there are a lot of questions that can be raised about this. Um, And we're going to save them for another time. So moving on. Second assumption, as Aubrey mentioned, is the purpose of this set of talks is not to establish whether God exists. But instead, if God exists, is the God that exists the Christian God? 
Okay, so the question that we're looking at is not, is there a God, but rather, if God did exist, would that be the Christian God? So in other words, we're going to assume for the sake of argument that what we'll call classical theism is true. Now, what's classical theism? Classical theism is the view that there is an omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect, personal being who created the world. This is a succinct statement of what God is like that would be affirmed by not just Christianity, but by a whole host of religions that existed before Christianity ever did. Zoroastrians, Jews, ancient Greek monotheism, a number of different versions of Hinduism actually would affirm this. There are Native American religions, um, indigenous African religions that affirm this. Of course, Christianity does, Islam does, and a number of other religions as well all would hold that there is an omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect personal being who created the world. What we're going to look at is not, does that being exist, but rather, if that being does exist, is there any reason to think that that would be the Christian God? Third assumption. Um, We're going to assume, for the sake of argument, that Christianity actually does hold that God is the triune incarnate redeemer. So, um, I'm just asserting that. If you have questions about that, those are ones you direct towards Aubrey, right? He would far more eloquently be able to explain from Scripture, from tradition, that, in fact, Christianity has held from the beginning that God is the triune incarnate redeemer. So if you have questions about that, again, that's something we'll have to set aside for another occasion. Fourth, um, what we're going to talk about is only the core of each of these ideas. Since these three concepts are so critical to Christianity, as you can imagine, there's a lot we could say about all of them, right? There's lots of bells and whistles that we could put on all these doctrines. We're not going to do that. We're doing the stripped down basic version. If any of you who are believers have read uh, Mere Christianity, it's kind of like what C.S. Lewis tries to do there. We're just, what's the absolute basic uh, understanding that we need to have of Christianity? And then finally, um, there's a couple different levels that we can do this. Right? Theoretically, if we wanted to, we could do this at the level of technical analytic philosophy where I lay everything out in terms of symbolic logic. Or we could do this in terms of systematic theology and talk about all the different histories of the doctrines and how it relates to all these different thinkers. We're not doing that. So this is the introductory version. Uh, it's meant to be a serious and thoughtful introduction, but still an introduction nonetheless. So if you're hoping for the symbolic logic, uh, you have to save that for another occasion. So what does the Trinity mean? Let's start with another visual image. The historic, historically, there is something that Christians have used to try to capture the doctrine of the Trinity called the Trinity Shield. Some of you may have seen this before. Um, if you look at it, in the center, right, it's in Latin. Sorry about that. Right, Latin says God, right over here, Father, here, Son, here, Holy Spirit. And what this actually says is there's kind of two things Right? First thing that it says is here is the Father is God. Right over here, the Son is God. Down here, the Holy Spirit is God. So that's the first part, that you have one God, but there are, so to speak, somehow three beings that are that God. Because up here, the non-est, right, is saying the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and then, of course, the Son's not the Father, right? The Holy Spirit is not the Father, etc. So visually, right, this goes way back within Christianity that there's kind of two concepts, that there's one God, but somehow three, we'll talk about what, some things that are distinct from each other, but are still that one God. If we wanted to say it all in one line, the official doctrine of the Trinity in one line is that God is one in essence and three in person. Now, it's a little bit of philosophical language in there. Um, we'll unpack some of that later. But if you want it all in one line, that there's one aspect of God that's one, and then there's another that is three. What's the one element? The one in essence means there's only one God. Right? So, above everything else, Christianity is supposed to be a monotheistic religion. There is only one God in Christianity. Now, later on, we'll talk about the suggestion that the Trinity somehow leads to more than one God, but Christians are not trying to say that. They are trying to say there is only one God. However, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all qualify as that one God, 
And again, what we mean here is the theistic concept of God. They all qualify as omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect personal beings who created the world. So that's the one in essence. One God and our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all have the same essence. They all have the same nature, namely of being an omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect personal being who created the world. The three in person means that they are all distinct. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not three different names for the same thing. Right? The three are distinct from one another. They are all distinct as persons. Now, what do we mean by person? Person doesn't mean human. Right? We'll talk next week about what human is. Uh, by person, what we mean is a self-conscious mind basically, that thinks, that feels, that acts. Um, you could add a little more there if you want to talk about a certain level of sophistication of the self-conscious mind. If you think animals are self-conscious, we'll ratchet that up a little bit. Um, Traditionally, though, the notion has been a self-conscious mind that thinks, that feels, that acts. That's what we mean by a person. And so what Christianity is holding is that there are three, so to speak, three centers of consciousness, three self-conscious beings that collectively constitute one God. And each of them individually has certain attributes, namely they are omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect creators of the world. Now, in trying to understand this and put more flesh to this sort of bare-bones doctrine, right, that all goes back to this sort of shield with this sort of is and is not, um, some Christians have come up with analogies. And unfortunately, a number of these analogies that you will have all heard if you're, if you're Christians, a lot of these analogies are bad. And so, sadly, we have to talk about a few of those. Um, the first mistaken type of analogy for the Trinity, um, there are kind of two often versions of it. One is water, and the other is people who have three roles. So the water analogy says, right, water, as we know, comes in three forms, right? Water can be a liquid, right, a solid, and a gas, right? So you might say, well, there's three in one. Or we might talk about a person who has three roles. So we might say of Aubrey, right? Aubrey is a father to his children, He's the son of his parents, and he's the counselor, right? Holy Spirit's often called counselor, to all of us. So you might say, well, there's three in one. That sounds nice, but it's really wrong. Because it denies any real plurality there. Right? This water cannot be a liquid and a solid and a gas at the same time. It's either one or the other. Aubrey cannot be both the father and son of the same person. Now, counselor one's a little more complicated, but, right, he has those roles in different ways with different people, not in the same way to the same people at the same time. The Trinity does not hold this. This view, ultimately, this analogy basically is, is actually a, a famous heresy called Sabellianism or modalism, which hold that God, is, that God has three roles. Right? He's, the, he's the Father in the Old Testament, the Son in the New Testament, and the Spirit afterwards. That's not what the Trinity actually says. Trinity claims, right? and all at this point it's just a claim, claims that God is all three persons simultaneously, not just at different times. It's not um, water taking different forms. It's not God appearing as different ways. It literally is three persons at the same time from the beginning forever. So that's one source of bad analogies. There's another. How many of you heard that the God's like an, the Trinity's like an egg? Have you heard that one? Okay, well that's the next one. And my, my apologies also to the Irish amongst us because there's another bad one, the Shamrock. Uh, my apologies to the Irish. Uh, ordinary objects, basically any ordinary object that has three parts, has at some point in history been used as an analogy for the Trinity. And this also has some mis, uh, misleading elements. Basically, these deny the unity in the Trinity, right? Because as we know, right, if you think of an egg, egg has a shell, right? Egg has the white, egg has a yolk. But what do some recipes call for? Yolks only, whites only. You can separate them. You can get rid of the shell, right? You can get rid of the yolk. You can go to the store and just buy egg whites, Right? You can take a shamrock and rip the three leaves off. 
Can't do that with the Trinity, though. Right? It's not three, it's not an ordinary object with three parts, because that would suggest it can be split up into pieces that you could have separately. This essentially, if this is what the Trinity says, then it is polytheism, right? It is actually saying that it's, you know, it's three things that they like to work together, but basically they're separate. That's not what the Trinity is supposed to say. According to the Trinity, God is three that are interdependent and cannot be separated or exist on their own. They either all exist together or none of them exist. There's no splitting them apart. Okay, so you might say, all right, fine, that's what the Trinity holds. Uh, That doesn't make any sense. Okay, so now we get to the second part. So the, does that make sense? There's basically two types of objections to the Trinity. We're going to talk briefly about both of them. The first one is that the Trinity is a contradiction. So this is a pretty bold one. Second one's bold too, but the first one is pretty bold. The Trinity is a contradiction. And it's, it's easy to set up what the argument is supposed to be that it's a contradiction. So it starts out with just, uh, the objector's argument starts out with three claims that the Trinitarian believes in, right? The Trinitarian says the Father's God, right? I mean, it was on the Christian shield. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God, right? That was right on the Trinity shield. That's what, part of what the Trinity says, Okay. Think back to, said we wouldn't do symbolic logic, so this isn't symbolic, but go back to geometry or logic. Think about, imagine a value. Suppose I tell you that the value A is equal to N, and then I tell you the value B is equal to N, and then I tell you that the value C is equal to N. Right? A is N, B is N, C is N. What follows from that? Right? What follows from that is A equals B equals C. So the objector says, right, what follows from this is the Father is the Son is the Holy Spirit. Right? Just base, seemingly pretty basic logic. But also, going back to the Trinity shield, Trinity claims pretty clearly that the Father isn't the Son, isn't the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity seems to imply on one hand that they are equal and other that they are not. This is a pretty blanket contradiction. So it's easy to generate this. So if you've ever wondered whether the Trinity is a contradiction, you are basically reconstructing in one form or another this argument in your head. Now it's at this point, unfortunately, that a lot of Christians get themselves in trouble. One of the ways they get themselves in trouble is they say, all right, yeah, it seems like a contradiction, but that's okay because God doesn't have to make sense. God is beyond reason. Now, imagine if I, at the beginning of my wife and I's relationship, when I didn't understand why she wasn't responding to me the way that I thought that she would, suppose that I had just said, well, you know, the reason that she's not responding the way that I think she should is just because women don't make sense. (laughs) They don't have to make sense. That's what makes them women. (laughs) Or... If I'm more modest, right, maybe I say, I'm a man, women do make sense, but I as a man am not able to understand the way that they make sense. And so that's what the problem is. Or maybe I'd say, um, feelings of romantic love are not consistent with careful analysis of what's going on in her head. (laughs) And I want to generate feelings of romantic love, so I shouldn't try to figure this out. If I had done that, we would never have gotten to the depth that we did and I would never have decided to marry her and she would never have decided to marry me. And so if, if you do the same thing with God, you're going to put yourself in a position where you are going to want to abandon this belief. And if you're not a Christian and we don't see the response to this, you'd be irrational if you accepted it. So there needs to be a response. Now this is, t- to say something's a contradiction is a technical objection and so it needs a technical response. So we're going to have to be a little bit precise in order to deal with this. And unfortunately, when you get precise, sometimes people get uh, a little bit worried. Um, In the mid-90s, or mid to late 90s, um, our president, President Clinton, when he was accused of having an inappropriate relationship with an intern, famously uttered the phrase that it depends on what the definition of is is. Now, you guys remember that? Some of you, thankfully, were too young to remember it, in which case, forget that I ever said it, right? 
When he said that, all of us as Americans cringed, and I as a philosopher cringed twice. I cringed once because, you know, president trying to get away with stuff, and cringed a second time because I as a philosopher know that there are times when it actually does depend on what the definition of is is, and now anytime I ever have to say that to people, they're going to think of you. Now, forget about trying to get away with stuff. The word is doesn't always mean the same thing. I'll give you a very simple example. Suppose that I say to you, Noel is the speaker at Downtown Talks tonight. Noel is the speaker at Downtown Talks tonight. Is, in that case, basically means equals. It's not that there's two dudes up here, right? Noel and the speaker, right? There's sort of this other one hovering over here. Right? It's just the same thing. Two names for the same thing. They are one and the same. Right? So that is in the sense of equals. But suppose that I instead of that say, Noel is male. There, I don't mean equals. It's not as if I'm asserting that the absolute sum total of all there is to masculinity <laughs> is right here. <laughs> as cool as that might be. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> so if you're prepared to say, admit that, then you're admitting that there's two different is's. And it's not to try to get away with something. It's, that's just what the word means, different thing in different context. So we might say, if we want to get fancy, right, which is is meant in this argument, there's two different is's. There's the first one, the is of equivalence, where you're saying that you're identifying one thing as being equivalent to another. In other words, there isn't two. There's just one, right? Noel is the speaker at Downtown Talks. We're saying that those two are equivalent, that there is basically just one. The other is, we might call the is of attribution. This attributes a characteristic to something. It says, Noel is male. Not that they're equivalent, that you look up masculinity and it's me. It's that I have that as a characteristic, and it's a characteristic that other people could have. And so I'm not saying that there's only one. There's more than one, right? There are many people who are male. There are many people who are, who are masculine. The is of equivalence versus the is of attribution. Now, if we look at the argument, four and five clearly are the is of equivalence, right? The Trinity claim in four uh, or in five that the father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are distinct, that's saying they are not the same thing. There is a difference between them. And so, to, for there to be a contradiction, that means the objector in four is saying that it follows from the Trinity that they are all the same thing, that that's the is of equivalence as well. Okay, so four and five clearly are the is of equivalence. What are one through three? One through three, the Trinitarian is not claiming that the Father is all that there is to God, or the Son is all there is to God, or the Holy Spirit is all there is to God, right? That's the is of attribution. In other words, what they are saying is, right, it's not saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three names for the same thing, like Noel and the speaker for downtown talks. It's not saying that, right? That's a heresy, right? That's essentially uh, right, going back to modalism. Instead, what it's saying is, all three of these have the attributes of God, right? That they have one essence, right? They have one nature. And by nature, we mean a set of characteristics. And those characteristics, right? Omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect, personal being. So the argument fails not because God doesn't make sense, not because we just take it on faith that it fails, but because it commits the fallacy of equivocation, is in one through three mean one thing, attribution. God has the, the trait of the characteristic of being God or being divine. And four and five, it has the claim of equivalence. It's claiming Father equals the Son equals the Holy Spirit. Trinity claim that they are not equals. Second objection. Second objection is that the Trinity undermines theism. Right, that it ultimately is affirming three distinct gods or is really tritheism. 
You can see how you would say this right after what I just said, right? What did I just say? I just said, when we say the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, I'm saying that what that means is the Father is divine, the Son is divine, the Spirit is divine. They have the same nature, right? I said, I am male, right? That was my analogy. Well, there are a lot of other people that are male, right? Aubrey's male, I'm male, but we're not one thing. So isn't it the case that Right? Just because three beings have the same nature doesn't mean they're one in any interesting sense. Now, the Trinity has a, a response to this, which it holds that the persons of the Trinity are, ex, and this is a big word, right? Existentially, this is your vocabulary word for the day, right? Persons of the Trinity are existentially interdependent. Now, just for a second, uh, the tritheism is an interesting claim. Um, tritheism is kind of like the un-American politician. All right, we just had an election. In an election, lots of things get said in an election. One of the things that gets said often is, so-and-so is anti-American, or so-and-so is, you know, doesn't believe in a strong economy, or they don't support education, or they're hostile to women. These aren't views that people have, right? No one stands, at least in the U.S., no one runs for office on the basis of, I'm hostile to America. Other countries, maybe, but not in the U.S. No one says, you know, vote for me. I'm hostile to women, right? I won't support the economy. I don't want to create new jobs, right? Those aren't views. Those are accusations. No one that I'm aware of, no religion has ever held to tritheism. That is to say, no one has ever held officially that there are three omnipotent, distinct gods, polytheists actually hold that God is finite, right? If you think about it, why in polytheism are there gods associated with different geographic regions? It's because God's power is, if you like, split up in different ways. This God covers this, this God covers that, that God covers the other thing. Once in a while, they'll throw in one overall, who's omnipotent maybe, but there's never three that are omnipotent. That's, right, that's not what, if the Christian is... um, A tritheist, they're not polytheists in the normal sense. It's a very odd view, and it's never something I don't know of any of you that explicitly holds to this. So what does it mean when we say that uh, the person of the Trinity are existentially interdependent? Basically, what it means is that it's not possible for one to exist without the other. They either all exist or none exist. That's not true of Aubrey or of me, right? We're both male. We're both human. We both have a whole bunch of traits in common. But there was a time when one of us existed and the other didn't. And theoretically, right, if one of us were to just be annihilated from existence, the other could still exist. Sad, but would still exist. (laughs) The persons in the Trinity are existentially interdependent. It is not possible for one to exist without the other. Um, If you go to this church or if you've gone to other churches that uh, recite creeds in in their... uh, Services, you might be familiar with the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed is one of the first uh, explications of what Christianity holds to. And in it, it's got basically seven lines and about 30 grammatical clauses explaining what Christianity holds. And about 20% of it is devoted to explaining the nature of the existential interdependence between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, you might not have known that because it kind of hides, right? So when you say... Right, uh, that Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made of one being with the Father. This is what it's talking about. It is talking about an interdependence between them. Now, if you think about, right, if you were giving an explanation of Christianity and you had seven lines and you had 30 clauses, would you use 20% of them to explain the existential interdependence between them? They did. The early Christians did, which means it's pretty important. And, and it's important because it's the thing that makes it not tritheism, right? It's, it's a critical element here. So what does it mean? It's sort of an odd phrase, right, that the Father begets the Son. And obviously this is, you know, kind of an analogy for begetting, which is used in uh, other contexts. And the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Put a star there for, for Son. There are some versions of Christianity that hold that he proceeds from the Father only. We'll just set those aside. Um, we can ask about that in Q&A if you want. So what does this mean? Uh, in the ancient world, they had a much more robust series of different views about what it meant to bring something into existence. We only have one. We have create or make. That's it. 
they had a lot of different concepts of how things could come into existence. And those were things that they appealed to in explaining the Trinity. The word make or create in the creed refers to what we normally think of as make or create, right? Like these works of art, right, that are on the wall that some of us uh, worked on. To make or create means to bring something into existence that has a different nature than you do at a moment in time due to your own free will. Now, there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. You think about those two, the two birds up there, the two lovebirds. Darcy and I made those, right? I made the pink one. She made the the blue one. Um, We are not paintings. We created them. We brought into existence something of a different nature than us. We did so at a moment in time, Valentine's Day. And we did so of our own free will. Yes, I freely went with her to do it. I was, I was excited uh, to do it. There was no coercion involved. It was entirely free. Uh, creation, when it says that God created the world, right? God is maker of heaven and earth. It means he brought into existence something of a different nature than him, the world, us. He did so at a moment in time, the beginning, and of his own free will. Beget is different from this. When the Father brings the Son into existence, and then the Father and Son bring the Spirit into existence, it is not making. It is not creating. It is bringing something into existence of the same nature as yourself from the beginning and not freely. In other words, right, it says that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father, meaning there was never a moment at which it had not already happened. All right, so now we get into time stuff. We can ask about that later if you want. Um, so speak from the beginning, from the outset, the Father had brought the Son into existence, and then the Father and Son brought the Spirit into existence. They brought in something into existence that was the same nature as them, another divine being, and it wasn't a choice. Now, that's critical. It was not a choice. There was no decision-making. It happened as a result of the nature of the Father, the nature of the Son, right? God's nature is what brought in. So that's uh, beget, and then cause to proceed basically is the same, um, except generally procession is understood as indirect rather than direct, um, Right, so sometimes it's said that the, the love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has to the Father brought the Spirit into existence. It was a sort of an indirect effect. We can talk more about that if you, if you want. But core, it's the same concept, which is that the nature of the Father caused the Son into existence, and there was no way the Father could exist without the Son, or that the Father and the Son could exist without the Spirit. In other words, either all or none. Either they all exist or none of them exist. And so, if we are counting units of existence, there's only one. Right? If you're counting persons, there's three. But if you're counting things that could exist, there's just one. Right? Because it's either all or nothing. There's no separation. There's no Aubrey exists, but I don't. Or I exist, but Aubrey doesn't. It's all or nothing. Right? The Father automatically is bringing into existence the Son. The Son's automatically, together with the Father, bringing into existence the Holy Spirit. It's either all or nothing. That is not like polytheism. There's no independence. There's no one exists without the other. There's no bringing into existence the same thing as yourself. This is different. Okay. So you might say, all right, fine. It's not a contradiction. It's not tritheism. That still doesn't mean it's true. There are plenty of things that are coherent as concepts that don't exist. Unicorns. There's nothing logically inconsistent about a unicorn. There could be a horse with a horn, right, that has, you know, that's pink or whatever. Uh, I don't know. Are they pink? I never quite, I mean, I don't know. Is my little pony, maybe that's an accurate representation of what a unicorn is, but it seems like they're pink or something somehow. I don't know. Maybe someone can clarify that one. Um... So there are things that are logically possible that don't actually exist. So you might very well say the Trinity is possible, but it it doesn't, it's not true. There is a philosophical argument that God is triune, and it's it's not original with me. The formulation is, I've tweaked a number of things. Within the Christian tradition, there has been a, a kind of standing set of arguments that are kind of on reason alone as to why uh, we think that God is triune. And essentially what it amounts to is a, cl- a kind of challenge to um, 
non-Trinitarians who believe in God that basically says, if you believe in an omniscient, omnipotent, morally perfect personal being who created the world, without knowing it or not, you are already committed to God being triune, that it follows from that that God is triune. Now, why is that? Well, one of the things that theists hold is God is morally perfect. I said that. God's a personal being. But he doesn't become that by creating the world. He was that from the start. It's not that God becomes morally perfect when God creates the world, creates angels, creates humans, creates a bunch of persons to relate to. God was perfect from the start. God was personal from the start. God doesn't become those things. What Christians have said is, the only way that God could be personal and could be morally perfect from the beginning, before creating anything else, is if God was composed of a community of persons. Now you say, well, how does that make sense? Well, let's look at that. So the claim is, it's not possible to be morally perfect, or, and or, right, so you could, if even one of these works, the argument will go through, and or a personal being if you're the only person who exists. And they say, well, that's convenient for the Trinitarian. Why should we think that? <laughs> well, let me share something with you. I know many of you have siblings who you don't fully get along with. You've had rivalries. You've had challenges. You've had problems. You've argued. You haven't treated each other perfectly. I'm perfect when it comes to siblings. I'm perfect. Now, why is that? Because I don't have any siblings. Now, is there a problem there? Yeah, there's a problem there. If you don't have any siblings, you can't be morally perfect with respect to siblings because you don't have any. You haven't had the opportunity to do anything good or bad to your siblings because you ain't got none. (laughs) Now, that doesn't mean that I'm imperfect with respect to to siblings either, right? Because it's not like I've had a chance to do anything bad either. I'm neither. I'm essentially morally, I'm sort of morally neutral with respect to siblings. What Christians have suggested is to say that God is morally perfect from the beginning implies that there's persons with whom God could be good or bad. There's, there's persons with whom God has related and has actually acted well or acted poorly. An essential part of morality on the Christian view is relationships between people. Now, more precisely, what we would say is that a, a critical part of morality, we wouldn't want to say that everything there is to morality involves relationships with people. There might be some things that are just intrinsically you and yourself, but that's a pretty thin conception of moral perfection. Right, that if, if God was the only person that existed from the outset, if it was just, say, the Father, then the only moral perfection that God have is pretty minimal prior to the creation of other persons. Another way of looking at it, an even deeper conception, is that the Christian view of personhood is that personhood intrinsically involves relating to other persons. That no person isn't, literally no person can be an island. That the notion of a person who exists on their own is a contradiction, right? That it can't possibly happen. That there is no truly solitary individual. And so what the, the Christian is ultimately claiming is denying the Trinity undermines God's personhood, right? You have to essentially demote God from being a person, make God more impersonal in some way, or say God's not a person in the sense that we're persons, or that God is not morally perfect in the sense that, you know, we might be morally good or bad. They might say, okay, maybe, maybe I can go with that. Why three? Why is it two enough? Right? Why not just have one other one to relate to? Well, that's a good question. The suggestion is that in personal relationships, there are at fundamental structural level... There are two different types of personal relationships, two different types of moral relationships that you can have. There's one-on-one and one-on-group. How I relate to an individual is different from how I relate to a group, where a group is understood as two or more. And you say, okay, well, why? What's the, why do we need the group part? Why, what's the reason for that? What does that bring to the table that's different from one-on-one? 
Well, if you and I are the only persons that exist, I have fairly limited relational choices. In particular, I can't have a relationship with you that is different from a relationship with another person. I either have it with you or I don't. There's no, like, I have a relationship with this person that's special that we don't have with you or that we didn't have with you to start with and then we brought you in later. There's no potential for, if you like, inclusive or exclusive relationships. Right? We as human beings have all kinds of relationships that are exclusive. Right? Marriage, right, in principle, is supposed to be exclusive. Right? You have a relationship with your wife that you don't have with anyone else. We also have inclusive relationships like friendship. You have a circle of friends Someone is not in your circle of friends, you bring them into that. Unless there's at least three people, you can't have all of that, right? With three, you at least have structurally the potential for the father to have a relationship with the son that he doesn't have with the Holy Spirit, right? That there's a relationship they have to each other that they all have. There's relationships that are different between them. And this is actually part of, right, the notion of the father begets the son and the father and the son Right? Cause the spirit to proceed from them. Right? The father doesn't alone bring about, or at least on the Western view, doesn't alone bring about the, the spirit. So there is a difference in how they relate to one another. And that's only possible if there's at least uh, three. Now you might say to yourself, okay, why not more than two beyond the father? Why not keep going? Let's, why not add in group-on-group group relationships or one-on-mob relationships? Well, uh, Christianity is motivated by kind of two main things in formulating the Trinity. One is this stuff about um, part of being, part of morality is relationships, part of being a person is relationships. The other side is something that's called Occam's razor. William of Occam was a medieval philosopher who's famous for giving an argument for monotheism. He gave an argument for monotheism, and the argument basically went something like this. If you believe in one or more gods, it's because you think that those gods are necessary to explain, say, why the world exists or why there's order and complexity in nature or something like that. What Occam said to the polytheists was, one god is sufficient. There's nothing explanatorily added by having two gods to create the world. One is sufficient. In other words, he held that we should affirm the fewest possible number of things that are sufficient to explain something. In philosophy of science, this principle has been known as the principle of simplicity, the principle of parsimony. If you're a crime scene investigator and you show up at the scene of a crime, you don't immediately say, I think there were five robbers. <laughs> right? You immediately start with, there was one robber, unless the evidence is compelling, compels you to add a second one or a third one. You always go with the minimum that you can get by with. This is why we don't believe in aliens, right? We don't believe in trolls. We don't believe in unicorns. It's not that we have an argument that unicorns don't exist. It's that they, we don't need them to explain anything in the world. And so Occam's razor pushes us to not add stuff to our view of God. And the sort of morality in person pushes us to add something. And the Trin Trinitarian claims that kind of the ideal point between these two is three. That when you get beyond three, if you go to four, if you go to five, you're, you, you might be adding a little bit, but you're not adding enough that it overcomes, right, the pressure to keep it uh, minimum. Right? It's not enough to overcome it. Well, if there were three persons that existed prior to God's creation of the world, they'd all have to be a part of God by definition, since that was all that existed at that point. Um, and so it would follow that God is composed of three persons. Ultimately, this argument uh, is a challenge to the non-Trinitarian to say, if you want to hold that God is personal, if you want to hold that God is morally perfect, and was so before creating the world, how does that work? How can you have moral perfection if you'd had no one to relate to? You had no one to treat well or poorly. Or if you had, right, no relationships at all. Christian says the best way we can account for that is to hold that God was triune, composed of three persons. So if we were to believe this, how might it impact our lives? Now, there's kind of the obvious stuff like, well, you'd believe different stuff. And so I don't mean that. I mean, kind of how would it sort of have ripple effects for your world overall? And there's a couple of ways that the Trinity has ripples for how we uh, think of the world beyond just, right, our view of God is different or how you pray is different or your kind of explicitly religious stuff. The first one 
is a huge challenge to our culture, which is that differences of roles do not imply a difference of value or significance, right? Part of what is in the doctrine of the Trinity, right, as we said, is that the Father brings the Son into existence, Father and the Son bring the Spirit into existence, that they have different roles. In a sense, right, the Father is typically held to be kind of the leader, if you like, right, sort of the, if you like, the sort of uh, visionary leader and director. The Son is typically understood as kind of the overt actor in the world, right? The son, when we get to next week, is the one who becomes incarnate, not the father, not the spirit. He's the one who directly interacts with creation. And the spirit is usually held to be the kind of behind the scenes one, the one that's sort of the indirect actor, the behind the scenes one, the one that you don't notice. So it's often held that sort of the father, visionary leader, director, son, kind of overt and direct agent in the world, spirit kind of the covert and indirect agent. Often it's said that, right, the spirit acts how? Through getting us to do stuff, right? Convicts us, encourages us, kind of indirectly gets things to happen by encouraging us to do things. The Trinity holds, though, that all of these are of equal value. They are all equally God. They are all omniscient. They are all omnipotent. They are all morally perfect. They are all of equal value, even though they have different roles. This is offensive to our culture. Our culture typically holds that the person who's up front is the great one, right? They're the one who gets the praise. They're the one that gets the attention. They're the ones we all want to be. We want to be the person, the guy up front, not the people running the sound, not the people setting up, not the people getting the screen, right? The people got the screen was really important for this talk. Let me tell you, our culture doesn't tell us that, right? But in the very nature of God on the Christian view, there are three different roles. There is the ultimate behind-the-scenes operator. The Spirit never brings attention to himself. He's always drawing attention to others. But yet, is equally God. That's a huge challenge to our culture. The next challenge to our culture is that your unity is not the absolute absence of differentiation. Now, that's a little bit of an odd sort of term to say. Um, one of the things that Trinitarians would say to those who kind of object that this, it's, you know, the tritheism charge, is to say that you can have differentiation and still have unity. That within a marriage, there can be differences. Within a family, there can be differences. Within a church, there can be differences. Not everyone has to be the same, act the same, do the same stuff. But yet there can still be unity. Differences between persons are possible even in one being. Even within God, there are differences of roles, and yet there is still unity in the strongest sense you can ever have. Right? No matter how close you are to your wife or your friend, you can still exist without the other person. They can't. Right? So they have the ultimate unity, and still there are differences. Unity is not the absolute absence of differentiation. We don't have to force everyone to be the same or do the same things in order to have unity. And then third, as you can imagine from the argument, um, relationships are central. Right? God himself is a community of persons on the Christian view. So relationships really, really matter. Even God only has a moral status because God is a community and is only personal by being relationships. And so how much more so for us? Relationships matter. We're not an island to ourselves. They're incredibly important. So I'll stop there. And now we will take uh, any questions that anyone has.